You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Brie, it's been so fun to, to delve into this cosmic egg of meaning. And particularly in this conversation, uh, as we talked about my story, well, not my, as in Paul Swanson's story, but just the... Which would have been, that would have been just as entertaining, Which though. would have been a really long episode. Um, <laughs> but as we talked about this this yoke of the, the, the cosmic egg, as Richard said, and the ways mm. that it shows itself in healthy and unhealthy ways, um, and the ways that we also need to see this as one healing aspect of the whole cosmic egg. What, what struck yeah. you in particular about this episode? Oh man, so much. I think, you know, it's really, it's really beautiful to hear Richard reflect on, you know, the healthy role of religion in giving context to my story, the my story, so that the the my story doesn't become the narcissistic whole thing. And, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that we live in an, in an era of, of narcissists and social media certainly isn't aiding us with that. Mm. So, um, the ways in which Richard talked about the importance of context and in, in seeing ourselves as reciprocally part of an hour and a larger, the a transcendent story was really helpful to me. What about you? Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of things that you just named, um, and I think it's near the end where he talks about Merton saying, talk about oh, yeah. the story kind of invading my story and that reciprocal edge of that relationship. Um, and with Jesus as our central reference point, that there's this this pattern that we can emulate and model from what we've seen in in the life and work of Jesus. I think it just kind of it, it helps me find myself in my own story within the my story of the cosmic egg. That's right, and you know, when 2020 has forced so many of us to reckon with where do I even find meaning when so much of what constituted the quote-unquote my story has been pulled out from under me or from under us, you know. And I think politically, we also explored some interesting questions about, um, you know, how that human need to be part of something bigger explains, you know, some of what's happening with the political echo chambers that are that are taking place right now. Yeah, that's so well said. I think about some of the, the shadow elements of the, of the my story that have been revealed in this time. Um, yeah. And I think it also helped me recognize the work that I still need to do uh, within this, using this map as a frame of, yeah. of, of the my story that I am, um, the scaffolding that I have put up or the, the things that have fallen down to recognize. So this is all part of my own transformation to uh, allow the story um, to infiltrate and and animate my story. It's such an opportunity to um, hear at the close of another name for everything, for us to allow this journey to come to an end because we want to privilege and center other stories, mm. you know, other my stories and other our stories. Um, and what an opportunity that is for us to you know, get out of the way. <laughs> but really, you know, it's that was that was another helpful part of this conversation was to recognize, you know, how, what a relief it is to uh, let go of needing to center the white my story. Yeah, and how that's a part of our own becoming, is in the letting go and the, the closure of this beautiful time together we've all had another name for everything, but that we close it out 
and continue to make make room uh, by by stepping away. So we hope you'll find this conversation helpful as we discuss the my story portion of the cosmic ed. <laughs> the cosmic ed, I love it. <laughs> it's just what came out of me. <laughs> oh, it's gonna be hard to come back from. <laughs> it's really he's such a good guy, that cosmic ed. He's the best. All right. So we hope that you'll enjoy this conversation on the my story portion of the cosmic egg as we continue this mini season closing out another name for everything. Richard, I wanna tee up uh questions that were kind of around the shadow within my story, not my personal story, but the, the my story of the egg. Um, so when I visualize this I, of the my story, I visualize a bunch of self-obsessed individuals bumping into each other and defying themselves by the, just by their personal narratives alone, divorced from lineage. Um, and it's concocted by themselves alone. And that life beyond their perceived self is an intrusion. It's just all about what their own experience um, and then if folks have been historically privileged, this adds a layer of protection and perpetuation of selfish motives, whether they're conscious or unconscious, to the, to the public sphere. And for me, this cartoonist visualization doesn't seem that far off for how structures of power can be built and can become abusive with that power, because it's a perpetuation of the, the my story. Um, and that those that are exercising that influence can be blind to it or failed to critique it. How does this strike you as like the shadow side of the my story and what that can perpetuate in the, in the public sphere and, and the ripple effects? Does that resonate with you? Boy, the way you were describing it, I kept saying yes, yes, yes. Um, are, are you, I, I think you're saying that if you just live in my story or live in it too long, you, uh, you do become self-obsessed, which we call narcissism. But it's such healthy-sounding narcissism. Yes, yes. <laughs> it sounds like educated narcissism. So we, we misjudge. This person is still self-referential. Everything is referring to my limited experience the only filter is me. And if you are the only filter or the necessary reference point, you just won't get very far. You, you'll, you'll be incapable of being a receiver station of other people's experience to love your neighbor and certainly infinite experience, which we call God. So too much my experience when it becomes the first filter, the person who always jumps in to the conversation with, I think, uh, or this is, this is what I have gone through, there's a place for that, but not every day, not every conversation. Sometimes you have to be able to talk in the third person about events, about ideas that are disconnected to me, to justifying me or justifying uh, my intelligence or making me look good. Or, uh, this is very hard to tell to a true narcissist. 
and we've produced a lot of them in our culture. <laughs> the language of narcissism is so common today that it doesn't look like narcissism. It looks like intelligence. And it's as common on the left as it is on the right. And I must say that very strongly. Um, we've always experienced it here at the center because most people who come to us are from the progressive end. But we've experienced many narcissistic people who once their narcissistic wound is further touched, they can be just as adamant, just as cruel, just as close-minded, just as accusatory as anybody else. It's one of the great disillusionments of working with educated people. Hmm. That's so helpful. Even in thinking of um, expanding the frame of narcissism uh, as the backdrop or harmonic coincider with whiteness. <laughs> yes. Because because when when my story as a white person is concomitant with the do the dominant our story, then we have to begin to examine how we tend to, you know, who who's my story is getting privileged and who's my story is um is being treated um, as though it's everybody's story, right? And and that kind of false projection of um, not recognizing how we how we assume the assumptions we make and the the in the faulties of our um, racial kind of uh, white privilege. And so I want to bring that up in this conversation here within the the context of healing, um, and maybe to say in this in this moment of necessary decentering of the white story what is the role of healthy reclaiming the the freeing liberatory act of reconnecting with the self of a my story for those who are marginalized or oppressed by the domination paradigm to use beatrice bruteau's frame it, you know there seems to be a, a growing recognition that we cannot go on as we have um you know this systemic silencing of of the my story of so many marginalized and oppressed people's black and brown voices. I guess I'm just wondering how the necessary reclamation of their my story fits into naming, um, you know, that, that, that uh, lifting up of my feelings, my beliefs as a sacred act of healing for them and necessary for us to center as well. My guess is you, you probably need to take years, and it, it's a spiral again, it isn't a straight line, of saying at each of the three levels, it is good, it is good, it is very good. <laughs> and then, then they interpenetrate one another. Uh, the healing that's involved in my personality, my family wounds, which everybody has, uh, and I say that now out of working with people so many years, there's nobody who isn't from a dysfunctional family <laughs> on, on some level, maybe not as high as uh, everybody else, but it has its own issues. Uh, that go has to go through its healing. The critical voice of history, of 
women's history, white history, black history. That's the whole middle part of life. And if all you do is over-identify with one group, white or black, let's just pick those two. There's a hundred races in between, I guess. But um, you're blind. You're blind if you think that the you know, validating of your story is the dominant paradigm that explains everybody else's. Oh, it's so hard. I, I mean, I don't know why God made it so hard. That's why God must be forgiveness itself. Because most people don't have the time, the education, the spiritual communities that you and I have had to face each one of these things to go on the spiritual journey of the story and to keep uh, layering back a deeper experience of God who's always bigger than we imagine, more than we imagine, and, and so forth. Um, but again, I want to say, as you move forward on one, you will find the call to find a bigger God, a bigger history, History might be the biggest one that's exploded in our time. Just this critical knowledge of history. And a lot of us used Howard Zinn's book, uh, A People's History of the United States. And it's still very hard for conservatives to read. But to read every American war simply through another set of eyes, which isn't American. <laughs> and a women's history is the same thing. For us men to read it through a, a woman's perspective. Each time we've got to say, I am not the center of the world. I am not the center of the world. Unless the single grain of wheat die, it remains just a single grain. And lo most of us up to now, we're allowed to remain a single grain. And from that viewpoint, judging everything else, which left us rather, not rather, mostly blind. Mostly blind. So we can thank God for giving us this capacity. To What it comes down to is to be more compassionate, more forgiving, more accepting, more patient. But uh, I, I suppose we want to yell at God, too, because, boy, you made this hard. <laughs> being a human being is so messy. <laughs> this whole human project is a real mess. But what I hear you saying is, is that you're, by seeing this frame, to see, by seeing this as a living, unfolding framework, it can offer us a deep humility to, to be aware especially for those of us who are white, when the my and our story, it, you know, how that needs to be called into question during this time, how we need to sit back and listen. And I, I just think that's, that's really powerful to put into the context of the cosmic egg in the midst of what's happening because it provides that kind of fluid reciprocity um, and compassion that you're talking about. Thank you for understanding because I'm still trying to, understand this, uh, much less teach it well. I hope I'm not using too abstract a words, 
But I know when you have all three, you have healthy and happy human beings. Really. Let's make it that simple. Healthy and happy. If you have honored your story, have gone through and love our story that you're a part of and can rest in the largest nest of the universal patterns. You don't have any reason to pick fights anymore. You follow me? It's, it's so subtle, the ways the ego will again take control. And, and it always wants to be right. And when the most recent form of political correctness is the new way to be right, human conversation just falls apart. I, I think this is what's happening in America, um, at least one, one way to understand it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does make sense, Richard. I think um, this kind of plays into to, for me about a bit of the shadow of the my story and the the the, the, the wanting to be right, um, and also the specialness. I want to talk uh, or ask you a question about something you wrote in the wisdom pattern on this uh, about. Uh, this desire to be special. So I'm going to quote you here. I don't know anything about the desire to be special. <laughs> She's a four, everybody. A magnificent four. <laughs> That's the best. You're right. The stage isn't big enough for all of us to be special on this little earth, except under the sacred canopy of the larger domes of meaning. In Jesus's language, the branch cut off from the vine is useless. Richard, this is uh, so countercultural, particularly in our American culture, uh, where specialness is taught that it's almost a birthright. How in the world do you think that this larger message can take flight and spread? To see ourselves within the larger domes of meaning and, and not try to pump up our own specialness. You know, if I had to choose, your point of entry between entering with the story where God's gaze makes me special and solves all the problems, uh, even though there's risks of narcissism there and of judgmentalism of people who are not my religion and not, and your point of entry being my story, my temperament, I would risk starting with the story. Because there you have a more radical specialness that can't be taken from you. And if you're honest, you have to admit that your specialness was undeserved, unearned, and that that gaze of infinite love was, is being given to everybody else too. And you can more easily meld downward into our story. Okay, now I can understand Jewish history and American history in the context of salvation history, infinite love. And now I can address my own personal temperamental issues in the context of infinite love. Uh, I, I'm sure I'm sounding very old-fashioned to many people in saying that, 
but I, I'm saying it out of experience. That like I've met, please don't be offended, anybody. I've met Southern Baptists who I confess as a Catholic, I was prejudiced against. I thought, my, they're all stupid. They're all racist. Forgive me. That's because I never lived around any real Southern Baptists, I guess. But I said, how can any religion uh, think slavery was okay, even minimally okay? So I had written them off. And yet again and again over the years, I have met Southern Baptists who, who's radical and sincere and authentic, heartfelt love of Jesus allowed them to relativize their Americanism and to relativize their own pathologies, their own private. Now, I wouldn't say it's necessarily even the majority, but it's enough. And the same with conservative Catholics. I can't go back there. I was too well educated by the Franciscans to not have a critical mind. But I have also learned enough that my critical mind can get in the way and make me overly judgmental. So um, if you have to choose entrance points, and let's be honest, the three of us sitting right here, we all started as very conservative religionists. Yeah. If that is religionist a word. Uh, I like it. It is now. Yeah, and then we broadened out. Oh, 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 without losing our beginning point, but j just seeing it in a broader lens. It's so helpful to um, f for us to be able to reclaim the healthy role of religion, even for those of us who now look back and say, "Oh gosh." <laughs> Yeah. You know, we can still reclaim the, re the the redemptive side of what we grew up with as, oh, yeah, it did give us a healthy thus story. It did place us in a context of go. a, of a larger transcendent unfolding reality um, that kind of checks the narcissistic my a little bit. But Richard, I want to ask you, you know, uh, this great segue into this question because on... Um, the, the Wisdom Pattern book, you say, you know, the small and fragile self needs to be part of something more significant, this larger story you're talking about. Um, and because it has that need, it creates dramas, tragedies, and victimhoods to put itself on a larger stage. And here you're talking about what happens when we don't have that healthy, you know, frame of a, of a transcendent, you know, um, perspective. So, it really resonates deeply with me that in the absence of deeper meaning, we're going to fill it with some addictive fluff, right? So like some type of myth making for ourselves that we can participate in. And immediately I'm thinking of social media, um, you know, but even like, you know, video games or Netflix or the political cancel, cancel culture that you named. So as the 2020 has forced so many to reckon with, where do I find my story now that so much of what used to constitute that drama is gone or shut down. And, you know, politically, 
I think this also helps us have more compassion for the ways that that human need to belong to something bigger is being co-opted by our respective political echo chambers on social media and otherwise. So I guess, what's your reflection on this moment and what the pandemic is maybe helping us to have a trapdoor to humility around the my story? Wow. Why do you two ask such good questions? <laughs> <laughs> Too early in the morning for me to have good answers. Uh, All I know is if we've spent too much time wrapping ourselves in the first two, my and our, that ego is so defended, uh, has so much insulation around it. Uh, the, uh, you know, you long for identity in the first half of life. And if you allowed this to become your identity, that you are, fill in the blanks, whatever it might be at that smaller level, boy, there's massive resistance to letting go of it. Don't you lay your religion on me. And we've done that too much, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about openness to something that's true for everybody, and that's beyond Christianity. Uh, but, but people have developed a very sophisticated language uh, of protection from anything that will dismantle my story or our story. And boy, you fight it, and they come out with their guns blazing even otherwise Christian people just astounds me another name for everything will continue in a moment Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. 
That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. It's, it's making me think about how, I guess the analogy there is that in, in some ways the pandemic has sort of taken away some of the props that we're used to creating, you know, the my story play. Like, it's sort of pulled the the stage lights and the props and the costumes away. And, you know, it's interesting to observe this, but um, I think there was an article uh, in the Times about this, that that there's a fascinating, fascinating correlation between times of pandemics and kind of uprisings in mysticism. Um, and I think, you know, it, it may seem obvious to say this, but it's, you know, when when the my story is exposed as bankrupt, <laughs> then the deeper hunger for that for that true belonging in a larger story can take hold. And and I think when that is at the same time layered with the kind of, uh, you know, um, diminishment and sort of uh, toppling down of the our political stories that's happening right now, too. I think th- there's this opportunity that we're facing collectively as human beings to ask ourselves, so what then now? What, what, how, can we, how can we belong together? How can we create new systems of, of belonging um, that reflect what the pandemic has taught us, is that we're all interconnected. And my story is not separate from your story. Yeah, and yeah. Um, the hum- the your answer was much better than mine. Uh, I didn't address the pandemic, and I mean, we're I'm still reeling from it. Mm. I, I keep writing these letters from outside the camp, as we call it, and yet I, I feel I still haven't gotten on to the immensity of the lessons we are presently learning. Uh, that there is clearly one body of Christ. And there's one sick body of Christ right now, physically sick. Um, what is it, that? Isn't that sort of clear, like never before? Oh yeah, yeah. And the the ways in which we um, construct a linear narrative of my story, <laughs> anticipating the future as if it's something we can count on. <laughs> Which is like, it never was. It never has been, but we delude ourselves into thinking that we can, you know, make these projections and assumptions. So, so many of us find ourselves like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what I'm going to do in three months, you know, or I don't really know what's around the corner. So for all of us who are in that kind of middle of life, like career driven stage of, of, of life, the pandemic is forcing us to reckon with the reality that my story is not the same thing as what I do for a living. Um, it's not the same thing as my accomplishments, quote unquote, whatever those might be. It's not the same thing as, um, you know, the things that I look forward to or anticipate. So it's, it's a radical time of unknowing and it's really uncomfortable. <laughs> it seems to be revealing kind of the, the, the actual state of my story and i think that that kind of unveiling of like this is actually um the my story that i've been trying to perpetuate or or build upon and to your earlier metaphor like that scaffolding has fallen over and i'm seeing kind of the vulnerability of my own story in a different way 
Yeah, and to drive it maybe a little bit to the personal level and in confession. I haven't had confession in so long. Well, have I ever had confession? I don't think I have. So Richard, this can be your first confession of me. But it's like, you know, (laughs) it's realizing, you know, like I really attach to this identity of being, you know, a contemplative as if I knew what that meant, or to mysticism, or to the mystics, or even in being a good student to you, Richard, or to any of the other teachers. And watching that story crack open has been really, over the last year, the beginning of a deep journey of of walking into the wardrobe myself and realizing like, oh, I was just as much of a contemplative asshole as anyone else. (laughs) Like, hi, my name is Bree and I'm a recovering contemplative (laughs) a-hole. Precious, very precious. But it's realizing that many of us, even, you know, and again, I know we're going to get to this when we talk about our story, but many of us have over-identified the my story with, you know, contemplation or being, you know, part of the CAC or part of what we're learning or discussing together. And that's like just one more camp outside of the wardrobe. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Very good. No. Brutal. Brutal. You know, in the earlier years, we used the language, I used the language so much, Thomas Merton of true self, false self. I think that overlays a bit here. Uh, You can't have true self without the story invading your consciousness. Uh, And that's why the egg has most cracked, is we denied any universal truth the last few hundred years. There's nothing that's always true. Once you say there's nothing that's always true, it destabilizes the person very sincerely. So that's, you've heard me say this, why I can't give up on religion. Someone has to say there are some universal patterns of goodness, of forgiveness, of liberation that are always true. We confuse the conversation by saying that there were part of the universal patterns were patterns of punishment and uh, exclusion. Once we make the universal patterns uh, a threatening God, uh, an unloving presence, no one wants to go back to universal patterns anymore. They have to be good. or We do not live in a benevolent universe as we say in our CAC uh, logo. And we're trying in this secular age to rebuild uh, a benevolent universe, what, what Martin Luther King and others called the beloved community. Mm. That's so well said. Thank you, Richard. And that line about the story invading the my story. Um, Richard, as a way to kind of close our time here together. Can you further connect the dots kind of of, um, a healthy nature of the relationship of my story with the universal Christ? You've kind of teed it up with the the story invading my story and the benevolent universe. Can you take us home with that? Well, given 
that we're a very individualistic culture. That isn't going to change in the immediate future. Uh, given that you and I have all the tools and vocabulary of self, uh, a large percentage of us are going to start on the other end. Uh, naming my story. What enters in is a lot of victimhood and a lot, a lot of aggressiveness toward supposed perpetrators. In fact, what we've found at this point is the major paradigm of explanation is perpetrator-victim. That this is what's made me uh, wounded or suffer. Uh, my father did this to me. My mother did this to me. Uh, my That I'm not pretty did this to me. It's so easy to look for someone to be the cause of my unhappiness. So I can rearrange other people instead of rearranging myself. If you can get out of that paper bag, and I, it's a big if, because once you've framed it, this is the unhelpful nature of dualistic thinking. Perpetrator victim is a, it's like a, Pinball machines? Pinball oh, machines. Pinball. Yeah. I think like you're, you're thinking about machine. the 80s, the pinball machine. <laughs> I had to reach back into it's my like childhood. It's like a pinball 80s. machine. <laughs> you just go back. Who's the perpetrator? Who's the victim? Who's the perpetrator? I, I perpetrated more. I was victimized more. I can't believe how many people that I, I like are still inside of that. And they're just waiting to get the new paradigm of perpetrator-victim. Uh, so, see, the gospel, uh, Jesus doesn't allow that because what he did, and you know what I'm going to say, he became the victim and did it as the jokester, <laughs> finding freedom on the cross. Uh, I'm not going to play the victim. I'm not going to uh, over-identify with, with, you hurt me. <laughs> yes, you did hurt me, but I'm not going to be trapped there. I'm not going to be trapped there. And I find many educated, sophisticated people, after their first sophomore course on social analysis, they learn that paradigm and they, they're a ping-pong ball the rest of their life. Maybe they reach a higher level of sophistication, but it's still the same paradigm. Instead of let go of it altogether, I don't need to find someone to blame. I don't need to feel sorry for myself. It's a dead end. Uh, but boy, is that hard to learn. So you asked me to connect the dots. When you start drawing the dots from the self, some dot has to be, has to radically not fit that paradigm um, where, where I'm the justified victim and all I have to do is find the right person to blame. I, I, that you find the wrong person and you, Suffer for it? Would that be 
a way of doing it. Probably, I've seen that happen. You you have a moment. You mentioned the good word humility. I have a moment of radical humility where I can see what I'm doing. Um, where I can re- let's use your good evangelical language. I can repent of my own sin. I don't see a lot of repentance anymore. I really don't. It's always a higher level of paradigm of explanation, of explanation, of fault finding, uh, which uh, ensconces me in my position. Uh, I, how does God teach us repentance? Uh, the word, uh, as you know, metanoia, literally means to change your mind and to turn around. Change your mind and turn around. This is much rarer than you might think, I find. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, Brene Brown's work around shame and guilt, where she says shame is the declaration that you are determined by a mistake or an action which we can also say cancel culture is very much, uh, you know, transcribing that inner shame and projecting it into shaming others, right? And so there you go. she says guilt is, is fluid. Guilt recognizes that we're still in the process of becoming. And this is why I think ontology is so important, even when we talk about the cosmic egg, because we're not talking about a static ontology. We're not talking about a static view of reality in which our determinant being is the entirety of who we are, but rather it's the unfolding of our collective becoming and our individual and kind of group stories is being nested in that larger unfolding reality. That's what lets us have the fluidity to have guilt instead of shame and say, oh yeah, I screwed up or yeah, I really missed the mark with that or oh gosh, like there's my white fragility again. And to have the humility to see those things correct course, but to keep going and not be defined by them, which seems to me, Richard, to be so much of what you've been teaching us with the universal Christ, which is that this is an unfolding, manifesting story. And at the heart of it, if Christ is, you know, another name for everything, then, you know, that is the ultimate story. (laughs) And everything else can live in relationship to that. Um, to that place of belonging and love and dignity and worth. The universal Christ is our metaphor for the forgiveness of everything mm-hmm. for not being perfect. And uh, once you recognize the necessity of the whole Christ alone being perfect, then I give up this search for who's at fault now. Who's at fault now? Who's at fault now? Uh, which is a never-ending journey of, of desolation, I think. Because you really think you're going to find it. And you think you're a genius when you've found who to blame. Or a precious contemplative asshole. <laughs> and what a model we have in Jesus of... Of of leading the personal to the universal. I mean, I, yeah. I think I always come back to that being such the core tenet of the CAC that Jesus, as the central reference point, just particularly in the my story, right, can really help 
open the floodgates of stepping deeper into the universal Christ and seeing Christ everywhere. Excuse me, I'm going to get a paper off my bulletin. I think this has been up here ever since I moved into this house 22 years ago. The person who blames others for his or her problems hasn't even begun their education. The person who blames himself has begun his education. The person who blames no one has finished his education. Where the need to blame has fallen away or to shame other people, as you were mentioning, Bree, uh, Brene Brown's work, where this passing on of shame is no longer my life task. That's, if that isn't a free person, I don't know what it is. There is no explanation which is going to find the worthy perpetrator when I am the perpetrator in parts and we're all the suffering body of Christ, we're all the wounded body of Christ, we're all the victorious body of Christ now because we don't need to uh, apply shaming names or mm. Of glorifying names to anybody. Mm. That's so beautiful, Richard, and a perfect meditation and way for us to close this conversation to consider, especially in our culture right now and in this moment that we're in, how vital that message is, how critical, how, you know, it's like I can feel my own body relaxing in relief over realizing like, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to get it right. My story is evolving, unfolding. Um, and, and it's no more uh, or less important than other stories. And um, we're, we're in a moment of deep listening to each other's my story. And I think that's a great, great place to begin a new chapter of whatever the hour and the is. <laughs> so thank you, Richard, for sharing your wisdom with us today. Yes, thank you, Richard. Thank you both. Good to be in dialogue with you again. <laughs> We're going to do this on uh, our story in the future, huh? Yes, yes. Okay, God bless you both. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good.
Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.